Good evening. It is uh, great to see you tonight. We're always thankful. Privilege is ours to be in God's presence, to be in one another's presence, to offer encouragement and strength to each other and to worship and praise God. I walked into the auditorium on the way in and things with the children had already begun. And the only thing I heard was Baptist church. <laughs> this is interesting tonight. We are off and running tonight. That was another great job. Thank you so much for that. Uh, when mistakes are made, typically I like to own them because they were probably mine at any rate, so I might as well own it. And uh, our young men are doing a fantastic job reading the scripture, as we just heard. And so I probably gave the wrong passage. My apologies. We're going to look at chapter 3 tonight. But the reading was outstanding. And if you'll remember it, when we get to chapter 4, you'll want to remember that. That was a fantastic job of reading that section of scripture. My apologies, I'm sure I gave the wrong text. Chapter three is where we are continuing our study of God's people. We're talking about Paul's perspective. And on this occasion, Paul turns his attention to our Lord and he gives his thoughts about the Christ. And as we discussed last week, Paul talked about God's people and he says, we are God's people. And then he lists three or four reasons as to why that's the case. He says, we are the circumcision. We worship God in spirit, and we rejoice in Christ. He went on to say, we put no confidence in the flesh. And it's that that leads him into this next discussion about our Lord. The key words in the section are gain and loss. He will talk about what he has gained and what he has lost. He'll talk about how he has lost Judaism. After all, that is where his allegiance was. He says he invested everything in that. He talks about that, and now he's gained Christ. And so he'll share with us what he has gained and what he has lost. He tells us how he views them both. On the one hand, he'll look at his loss, and he'll tell us how he views it. Here's, here's what I've lost, and here's what it means to me. And then he'll turn, and he'll say, here's what I gained, and here's what it means to me. And he'll even contrast the two and say, what I've gained is, and it's providing this for me as a result of it. The emphasis is on him, and I think that's really what flows through the book, the I and the me, as Paul talks throughout the book. In chapter 3, again, verses 4 through 6, he says in verse 4 that I might have confidence in the flesh. If anybody could, I could. And then he begins to enumerate why. He was reared, educated, steeped, and even excelled in Judaism. He was taught by one of the great teachers of the day, Gamaliel, brought up under his feet in his tuliage. He had the knowledge of the world. He was from Tarsus in Cilicia, no mean city, he referred to it as, Acts 23, 39. Strabo, the Greek geographer and historian, wrote in the early part of the first century, tales of the enthusiasm of its inhabitants for learning, especially for philosophy. In this respect, he says, Tarsus surpasses Athens and Alexandria and every other university town. Paul was steeped in that and excelled in it. Paul's education led him to this conclusion, that Christ was a fraud. His followers should be killed, his religion stopped, and he renounced. That was Paul's conclusion with regards to Christ. That's what his education had drawn him to, and he went out and lived that. He was there when Stephen was put to death Acts chapter 7, holding the coats 
of those who stoned Stephen. He went from there to persecute the saints who called upon the name of the Lord. Later, as he related it, Acts 26, 9 through 11, he says, I thought I should do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which things I did. He says, I gave my voice against them. I helped put them to death. And then he met Jesus. And this is what he writes. Having met the Christ and become a disciple, he pens these words beginning in verse number 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. When you hear that section read, you can hear how frequently he talks about loss, how often he talks about gain, and how many times he mentions Christ. Our outline then is simply three points with reference to what Paul says here in this section. First of all, the knowledge of Christ. It surpasses everything. Secondly, the righteousness of Christ. It comes from God by faith. And then thirdly, fellowship with Christ, that I may attain the resurrection. Let's begin here in verse 7 and verse 8 and talk about the knowledge of Christ. Paul says, what things are gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Knowing Christ is the greatest knowledge he could possess. It's the greatest knowledge anybody can profess. Paul's assessment of his life before and after Christ is different because of this new knowledge that he has. And as he now looks back on his previous life, which he enumerates in verse 4 down to verse 6, and he had gained within that. And he says, those things that I gained, whatever it was, he says, now I count it loss for the sake of Christ. The word loss doesn't mean I count it as nothing to me, as if it didn't happen or had no regard, or that I could live without it some way. This word means and goes to the idea of violence detriment or damage, loss. That's how Strong refers to it. It's rendered in Acts 27 and verse 10, where Paul and those on the ship have suffered hurt or harm or damage, Acts 27, 10. In that same passage, it's again in Acts 27 and 21, the same word, harm or loss. The knowledge that Paul had in Judaism and the world that he had he now looks back on it and says, it was actually damaging to me. It was harming me. And that which now I have and I count it as loss, I count it as harmful. I count it as damage to me. In fact, he says, I count everything that way. As compared to what? In view of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus. He refers to Jesus as Jesus Christ our Lord the word Christ means the anointed, the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that one. Jesus, the Jehovah is salvation, Matthew 1, 23 to 25. And Lord, the one who is supreme in authority, 
that to whom a person belongs, his master. He says, in light of meeting Jesus, in light of knowing him, I've suffered the loss of all things to sustain damage, to receive injury. These Jews and what they have done and are trying to do to Paul, they've caused him hurt and harm, yes, but what they're taking from him actually was harmful to him. He says, as a result of that, I count it but rubbish. It's refuse. It's waste to me. It's worthless. It's detestable. Paul counted what they were taking away as damage to him, and in some way their persecution helped Paul. For they were taking from him something that he already understands was harming him. It's very hard to harm a man when you're taking away from him that which he believes is causing him harm. And Paul says, you can have it. I count it but loss for the excellency of knowing Christ. It puts me in mind of Psalm 51, and maybe you can just check your own heart and mind with regards to your thoughts about the Christ and how important and significant knowing him is. One of the things that David says in that psalm of penance when he is crying out to God about his sin and asking to be cleansed and washed and forgiven, he says, among other things, restore to me the joy of my salvation. It's one of the things that can be lost along the way. David is saying, restore to me the joy. And maybe you and I can go through periods of our life where Christ just doesn't mean what he once meant. Where the joy of knowing him, the joy of the light bulb going off for the first time when you meet Jesus. Maybe as we stay in the body over time and habits are formed and patterns are developed and obligations and responsibilities and living the Christian life becomes a chore and it's possible that the joy of salvation, this knowledge of knowing Christ, can, if we're not careful, lose its luster. Paul says, I got it. It's framed for me perfectly. I had this. I was excelling at it. I was improving and progressing, and then I met Jesus. And whatever it was I thought I had, it is absolutely waste to me when it comes to the knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. First, the knowledge of Christ. Secondly, the righteousness of Christ. That's verse number nine. He says in verse number nine, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. You'll notice again the connection to Christ. It begins with the phrase, and be found in him. It's one of the ways the New Testament frequently talks about Christ, that there is a location and things are housed within Christ. That is, you can't have them without him, and you can't have them outside of him. Salvation, for instance, is in Christ. That's what 2 Timothy 2.10 says. Paul writing to Timothy by way of encouragement to get back in the fight and suffer and endure. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in 
Christ Jesus with eternal glory. When having Bible studies with people, it's one of the things I try to help them understand. The salvation is not simply a matter of these, these particular actions that you have to take. It includes that certainly. But those actions lead you to a location. Those actions lead you somewhere, and it's the somewhere that's exceedingly important. In fact, you can't get to the destination without doing the things that God has required. And where God has placed salvation is in Christ. You can't get it outside of Christ. You can't get it on your own. There's nothing you can do. It's in Christ or you can't have it. Paul says, I need to be found in him. Secondly, all spiritual blessings. That's what Ephesians 1.3 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. What that means is there are no spiritual blessings outside of Christ. Sometimes people talk and act as if there are spiritual blessings everywhere and for everybody. And it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're a religious person and as long as you say these words that sound religious in nature, well, then you have access to the spiritual blessings of God. You do not. If all spiritual blessings are in Christ, that means there's none outside of him. And if one is not in Christ, well, then he can't access the spiritual blessings. It's that simple. God has placed all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Our hope is in Christ, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 19. Paul says, I need to be found in him. Well, that's absolutely right. When it comes to righteousness, that will be done and that will be found in him. Now, imagine if you had talked to Paul prior to meeting Christ. Steeped in Judaism, Paul, are you righteous? Yes, how? By the law, by my good works. But then he met Jesus. Paul now says, I count that all but loss, and I need to be found in him, that I might be found in him. And then he says, not having a righteousness of my own. This is part of the conversation that our Lord is constantly engaged in in the gospel accounts. How is a man going to be righteous? Well, the Pharisees keep suggesting over and over again by keeping our traditions. You look at Mark chapter 7, read that chapter and listen to them talk about washing of cups and hands and doing all of these things, and that won't justify. Or maybe it's the good works and the perfect keeping of the law. That's the man in Luke 18, the one who went up to the temple and prayed effectively, God, aren't you glad I'm on your side? After all, I'm not like this other man. I'm not like these other people. No, no, I keep. And then he enumerated all the good that he does in his life. Luke 18, 9 to 14. As such, and as that, that, op, that disposition was had, then they missed out on the righteousness of Christ or the righteousness of God through Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, that they have went about to establish their own righteousness, and they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. That's where Paul was. And after meeting Christ, he knew it, how, self, how damaging this self-righteousness was. It's one of the things he counted but lost for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but that which is through faith. Where? In Christ. No one can justify himself, and no one can declare himself righteous. I keep saying this because I don't know how else to say it, but another sermon, another day. <laughs> have you ever noticed how much legal 
jargon there is in the Bible, how much often the Bible speaks about things in a legal fashion. So if you sin, you break the law. 1 John 3 and verse number 4, sin is lawlessness. You are a violator of law. Spiritually, you have violated God's law, and as a result, you're guilty. That's how the Bible talks about it. As one who is guilty, you will be judged. The judge will drop the gavel. You will come to the courtroom, and the judge will judge, and the verdict will be guilty, and therefore, you need a lawyer. So you'll be given an advocate. And this kind of talk just goes on and on and on through the Bible. Part of that process is you need to be pardoned. You need to be declared righteous. It's the nature and the responsibility of the judge. The person who is guilty cannot come into the courtroom and say to the judge, let me tell you what I think I deserve. That's not how it works. The one who is guilty can't tell the judge, let me tell you how I think you should determine my righteousness. That's not how it works. In order to be declared righteous, and that's the way it has to be, it has to be a declaration. It can't actually be the case because you're guilty. And so once you're guilty, you now can either be sentenced or you can be pardoned. It is the responsibility of the judge to decide whether or not he will pardon you and to declare you now righteous and thus not guilty anymore, at least as far as the law is concerned. That's what Paul's talking about. I want to be found righteous. I want to be made right in the sight of God. That's what the word means. The state of one who is as he ought to be. You could be that if you've never sinned. You could be as you ought to be, but once you sin, how do you get to that state? Well, God declares you righteous, but how? By faith in Christ. That's what the book of Romans is dedicated to, the proposition of how God justifies man. It's the question that Job asked. I know it is so of a truth, but how shall man be just before God, Job 9? The book of Romans takes up the discussion and declares, here's how it will happen. And that justification will happen by grace through faith. That's the way it will work. It's not so much a fight between law or faith. Rather, it's a fight between how one approaches God. Man approaches law by faith or by a matter of his works. Faith justifies, not law apart from faith. Rather, faith's approach to God and his law. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, Paul talks about that into chapter 4 in the first eight verses of that chapter. In chapter 1, he says the Jews or the Gentiles have sinned. In fact, they have sinned in such a fashion that God has cast them off. They gave up God. God gave them up. In chapter 2, God says, and you Jews, you did the same things. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever you are justified by the law. You have done the exact same things. And so he says in chapter 3 and verse number 9, Are we Jews better than they Gentiles? No, we have before proved all under sin. And now that all is under sin, how does anybody get out? In Romans chapter 3 and verse 24, Paul says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. That's how. God will extend his grace, and you and I must have faith. 
in verse 27 of chapter 3, he says, where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. It is faith that justifies. James referred to it as the perfect law of liberty. We trust God to justify us. Faith is trusting God and doing what He says. You don't do what He says without trusting Him. You don't do what He says while ignoring His grace. And you certainly don't do what He says and then claim justification by how well you did it. God can never be in our debt. We are in His, and God never owes anyone pardon. Paul now understands the very Christ he was trying to destroy. The very religion he was trying to put an end to is the very way he will be made right with God. And so he says, I need to be found in him, not having a righteousness which is of my own, but the righteousness which is of faith. Paul says, first of all, this knowledge of Christ surpasses everything. I count everything else but dung. This righteousness of Christ, he says, that is how and the way God will pardon me, justify me, declare me righteous as I ought to be. And then thirdly, he says, this will allow for fellowship with Christ. Verses 10 and 11, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. There are three things that motivated Paul to do what he says back up in verse 7, to count all things but loss. He says again that I may know him, to learn him, to know him, to come, to have this knowledge, to perceive him. It's the very thing that Jesus invites us to do. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. That is the goal. Paul says, that's what I want to do. I want to learn him. Brothers and sisters, please don't spend time in the Lord's body not knowing the Lord. Please don't allow Christianity to become a thing that we meet appointments and come to buildings and do these things. Please don't let it be only that. Let that stuff flow out of the knowledge of Christ. Let that be the goal and the reason. That's the whole point of being a disciple. The word means a learner, but of whom? Of what? Of Christ. In fact, if Christianity were a school, and in some sense it is, Jesus Christ, you would find him at the lectern being the teacher, and when you open the book, you would find him on the pages being the subject matter to learn. Jesus is the thing that we learn. That's the lesson plan, that I might know him. That's absolutely right. We read in chapter 2 and verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. How can that happen if I don't know his mind? How can I think like him if I don't know him? How can I live like him if I don't know him? Paul doesn't stop there. That I may know him, he says, and the power of his resurrection. He's referred to him already as Christ Jesus, our Lord. He has power then. He has divine power. The infinite power to say, I have power to lay it down. No man takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. That power. 
the power that he was willing to forego on some level, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery, a thing to be held on to, to be equal with God. But he emptied himself, took on himself the form of a servant. Paul says, I need to know him and the power of his resurrection. That is the gospel. That is the good news. We often stop there. It is the death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that needs to be emphasized because that's where the power is. He was declared to be the Son of God with power after the resurrection, Romans 1.5. Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 15, an entire chapter dedicated to this resurrection and its power and what it means to us ultimately. In fact, it is the motivation for Christian living. Be ye steadfast unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know your labor is not in vain. That's how the chapter ends. What's before that? The resurrection. As a result of the resurrection, be steadfast. As a result of the resurrection, be unmovable. As a result of the resurrection, be always abounding. Why? Your labor is not in vain. He rose and so will you. Paul says, I need to know that. To get there, he says, the fellowship of his sufferings. Christianity, especially in the first century, would have been a life of suffering. If you had met a Christian in the first century and you had been interested in the gospel and they were able to share with you the good news and you responded favorably and said, I want to be a Christian, I want to be saved, and they took you to a body of water and they buried you and you came out and you rose and began to walk in newness of life, that newness of life, would have very likely included suffering. In fact, in the first century, it would have been hard to avoid. The persecution was already in earnest. Acts chapter 4, they're arrested. Acts chapter 5, they're beaten. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is killed. And Acts chapter 8, Saul is on the move. And it doesn't get better from there. No, if you were going to be a Christian in the first century, you were going to suffer. Paul said, I'm in. I want to be a participator, one who fellowships, has association, a joint participator in the sufferings of Christ. He knows that Christ didn't suffer just for the sake of suffering. He knew that Christ suffered for our redemption, the sacrifice for our sins, Isaiah 53, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 18, Romans 5, 6 through 8. He suffered and Paul says and understood that if you live godly, you will suffer persecution. He says in this very book, back in chapter 1 and verse number 8, he says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ, and that I pray your love abound yet more and more in knowledge, and you approve all of these good things. He says, as a result, they were going to suffer at the end of chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I'm absent or present, that you may stand fast in one spirit, striving together in one mind and in nothing terrified of your adversaries. He says there's going to be suffering, but I want to participate. I, I want to know him. I want to be a part of what he has gone through. What it will do is make me conformable to his death. And so, Paul will say at the end of his life, I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not only to me, but to all those who love his appearing. Why, Paul, are you willing to go through this suffering? Why are you enduring all of these things, he says, in order that I may obtain the resurrection of the dead. Paul's goal is the same as your goal. It's heaven. And Paul's life was lived after he met Jesus to that end. He preached Christ. He lived Christ. He died for Christ. We hear in Paul's writings and his perspective a look toward the future constantly. Heaven was the goal, and death and the participation in the resurrection were the means of getting there. And as Paul writes from prison to encourage these brethren, he says, listen, over and over again throughout the book, it's about Christ. I know him now. And knowing him is more important than anything else I've ever known before. The knowledge of Christ surpasses everything. I hope you still feel the same way. He says, secondly, the righteousness of Christ. I was never going to get there on my own. Regardless of how well he lived, he was never going to get there by his good works. And there are people who live lives and they say, I'm a pretty good person. Listen, you don't want to be a pretty good person. You want to be a person declared righteous by God through Jesus. That's what you want to be. Paul says that righteousness of Christ comes from God by faith, not any other way. And thirdly, he says that provides fellowship with Christ. Sometimes people talk about being in foxholes. If you had to be in the foxhole, wouldn't you want Jesus in the foxhole? If you have to participate with someone, don't you want to do it with Jesus? Paul says the fellowship of Christ will allow me to attain the resurrection of the dead. And at the end of this life, I will be where he is because I followed in his steps and participated in what he did. Family, there really is no other way than to do it just like that. If you're not a Christian this evening, we invite you to become one. Why? For these very same reasons. You need to know Jesus. You need to be declared righteous by God. You need to fellowship with Christ so that you can go to heaven. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's what you begin with. Everything in Scripture begins with new knowledge. Paul had knowledge of God and of Judaism and religion, and then he met Jesus. He got new knowledge. We learn Jesus. We don't feel him. We don't guess about him. There aren't hunches. We learn him. And when we learn him, we allow that learning to change our hearts and minds, and the Bible calls that repentance. And as a result of that changed heart and mind, we're willing now to admit and acknowledge, I believe in Jesus. I want to side with Jesus. I want to live with Jesus. That's where Paul is. And so we confess the name of Jesus. We say the same thing, quite literally. Jesus said he's the Son of God. I say the same thing. He is the Son of God, and I believe it with all my heart. And then we get baptized. We get washed in the blood of the Lamb, buried with Him in baptism so that we can rise and walk in newness of life. Friends, if you've never done that, you need to. But what if you have? We talk about pardon, and then someone has come up with the idea of the second law of pardon. And all that really means is what happens when a child of God is saved and then goes away. Well, God allows that person back. They refer to it as the second law of pardon. All it really means is 
God is viewed as a father, hoping and waiting for his son or daughter to come home. And if they will, he would but meet them and greet them, embrace them and kiss them, and celebrate that his child who is dead has come home and is now alive. Friends, let the goodness of God lead you home if you need to. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.